Pearl Church exists to express a sacred story and to extend a common table that animate life by love. A primary expression of our sacred story is the weekly sermon. If our sermons inspire you to ponder the sacred, to consider the mystery and love of God, and to live bountifully, would you consider supporting our work? You can donate easily and securely at our website, pearlchurch.org, or follow the link in the podcast notes. Thank you for partnering with us in expressing this sacred story. God of all consolation and compassion, your son wept over mourning. Your son wept over death. Give us the courage to weep over all that is broken and give us ears to hear your call, Lazarus, come out. Amen. And please be seated. The season of Easter and the Gospel of John are both celebrations of life. And in his attempt to celebrate life, John intentionally mimics the creation account of Genesis. And yet, rather than seven days of creation, which result in God resting, in John, seven miracles are followed by the resurrected Jesus, who meets with and talks to Mary Magdalene in a garden. This imagery of Jesus and Mary in a garden is a picture of new life and a new world that builds slowly in John's gospel, miracle by miracle. And so throughout the season of Easter, we've been in a sermon series titled New Creations, which has been trying to explore the goodness of Jesus' life in this world, one miracle at a time. And it's through John's seven miracles that we're offered a window into resurrected life, not one day down the road, but here and now and today. Miracle number one, water to wine. Number two, healing the dying. Number three, caring for the sick. Number four, bread from heaven. Miracle number five, walking on water. Last week, miracle number six, healing the blind. And this morning, miracle number seven, raising Lazarus. Uh, The whole plan for today's sermon has been to link the Lazarus miracle to God's new creation in the Christ. As we've been saying for the last several weeks, John is recasting this new creation. And after Jesus raises Lazarus, there is no other miracle in John's gospel. Instead, near its end, there is merely Jesus, like Adam, in a garden with Mary, Magdalene, like Eve. And this is very much like the Genesis account where God is in the garden with Adam and Eve. And so the plan has been to celebrate this new life that is made manifest in these stories. And the invitation was going to be to try and abide in God's garden of new life and to have our lives manifest this love that we've seen in Christ. But we just can't seem to get away from life in the garden that is this world, right? in which pain and suffering and sorrow are feeling ever-increasing and utterly overwhelming. And so rather than attempt to force joy this morning, I thought we could spend our time noticing sorrow, which is very much in our hearts, not only due to COVID and Ukraine, but in light of two recent horrific shootings involving people of color and little children, I've heard from so many of you this week. We are just sick with sorrow. 
sick with it. And to be clear, there's much work to be done, work toward ever-increasing racial justice, work toward desperately needed gun reform. And so, yes, we need to keep marching and voting and petitioning and giving to organizations that are bringing about good in the world related to these two specific issues. But this morning, I'd like to take time to focus on the emotional and spiritual weight of being a human in this world. It's not easy to be a human in this world. For many things are breaking, many things feel broken, and we are sick with sorrow. Several years ago, I was in a reading group with a few friends, and we would get together, and we'd sip whiskey, and we'd read poetry, and we'd share the things that we've been writing, but we'd always start our time catching up on life, and one of our friends was going through a really tough spot in his marriage, and he thought that it wasn't going to work out, and we asked him, how are you feeling? And tears started to fill his eyes, and he said, I I want to read you a poem. I've shared this poem a few times, and I often return to it. It's by Anne Sexton. It's a poem about divorce. It reads, I have killed our lives together, axed off each head, with their poor blue eyes stuck in a beach ball rolling separately down the drive. I've killed all the good things, but they are too stubborn for me. They hang on. The little words of companionship have crawled into their graves. The thread of compassion, dear as a strawberry, the mingling of bodies that bore two daughters within us, the look of you dressing early, all the separate clothes neat and folded, you sitting on the edge of the bed polishing your shoes with boot black. I loved you then, so wise from the shower. And I loved you many other times, and I have been for months trying to drown it, to push it under, to keep its great red tongue under like a fish. But wherever I look, they are on fire. The bass, the bluefish, the wall-eyed flounder blazing among the kelp and seaweed like many suns battering up the waves, and my love stays bitterly glowing. Spasms of it will not sleep. And I am helpless and thirsty and need shade, but there is no one to cover me, not even God. As my friend finished reading these words, there was little to do but let the tears roll. Our love for our friend and for his marriage, his sorrow so aptly expressed in a poem, we sat in silence and just cried. It was a painfully honest moment. And if I'm being really honest, it was a rare moment. Rarely do we remain present to pain and sorrow. And this reminded me of the wisdom from the birds in the 60s. You know their song, Turn, Turn, Turn? The chorus, to everything turn, turn, turn. There is a season, turn, turn, turn. And a time to every purpose under heaven. The verse, a time to be born, a time to die, a time to plant, and a time to reap, a time to kill, a time to heal, a time to laugh, a time to weep. And the chorus again, to everything turn, turn, turn. And back and forth the wisdom goes. Wherever you are, whatever it is, turn to it. In other words, open yourself to it. For whatever it is, that is where you are. And so be there. 
course, the song derives from an ancient song found in Ecclesiastes chapter 4. It's sung by an old king who's come to realize this profound wisdom. There is a time for every season. And so let us exist within the season that we find ourselves in. But what if that season is weeping? And what if we aren't very good at being present to our sorrow? I mean, it's hard to turn toward and to exist in sorrow. A few years ago, uh, after my mom passed away, our daughter Phoebe, who tends to ask questions like a therapist, <laughs> uh, she asked me at the dinner table, out of the blue, how I felt about the distance that I experienced in my adult relationship with my mom now that she's gone. And I mean, there was regret and sadness. It was just, you know, like under the skin, right on the outside of my heart, but I hadn't really expressed it to anyone or talked about it. And I just started crying. I mean, ugly face, crying at dinner. (laughs) I'm not sure what your experience with sorrow was like growing up. For me, I rarely witnessed my parents sad or crying. A few times I saw my dad cry. It was like very measured crying. Few tears quickly wiped away. Even at my mom's funeral, our our grief was measured. My mom was a very positive person, and so her memorial service ended as a 60-year-old woman who died of cancer with the song, Oh, Happy Day. That's how it ended. So needless to say, I struggle to exist in mourning. I think it's a family culture thing for me. But my experience isn't that this is only me or my family, many of us, I think, struggle to exist in mourning. And maybe that's like a Western American thing. It's certainly a Western Christian thing. Hey, God will turn this into good. Look to the positive. Hey, just think of the ministry that this is going to open up in your life. Have you ever heard that? (laughs) Yeah. God won't give us more than we can handle. Hey, try and look at the bright side. In other words, don't turn toward this incredible sorrow over divorce or sickness or war or shootings or tragedies. Turn away as quickly as possible. And yet to turn toward sorrow, to exist in sorrow, as we will see, is not only biblical, but it is also wonderfully human. In an ancient story from 2 Samuel chapters 11 and 12, King David absolutely blows it. He lusts after a married woman named Bathsheba. He sleeps with her, gets her pregnant, murders her husband, takes her as his wife who gives birth to a child, and David covers it all up as though nothing, nothing happened. And if you read the story carefully, it's clear that David pretended as though none of this actually happened for at least one year. One year. Think about that. 365 days holding all of that inside of himself. But then the Lord sends the prophet Nathan to David, who tells him that what he has done is no secret. All things are under the purview of God. That his house will be divided by his deeds and that his child will not survive. And in this moment, after trying to live in a very different kind of moment for over a year, we read that David no longer languished away in his illusions there was not trouble. Instead, for the first time in a very long time, he turned wholly and fully into his overwhelming shame and embarrassment and sorrow. 
He did not eat. He did not drink. The story tells us that he slept on a stone floor at night. And we are told that he wrote this poem as a result of his experience. Your desire, you desire truth in the inward being. I love that line. You desire truth in the inward being. It's difficult to exist within the truth in our inward being, especially if it's sorrow or disappointment or pain, or anguish. And yet, David writes, you desire truth in the inward being. And so what might it be like to exist in our sorrow, whether it be divorce or sickness or death or the chaos that we've created with our decisions in our lives? But I guess also, what are our other options? Like if we don't enter into it, I I think that our only other options are to pretend or to ignore or to try and live in a place that is not in accord with where our souls actually exist. You see, humans do not need to have it all together. We do not need to get it all right, and we do not need to keep it all in. The divine desires truth in the inward being. And so there's a time to die, and there's a time to uproot, and there's a time to weep, and there's a time to mourn, and there's a time to scatter stones and to give up and to throw away and to tear apart and to just be silent and to it all, to everything. That old sage in Ecclesiastes says, turn, turn. There is a season, turn, turn, turn. This morning's gospel reading from John chapter 11, uh, we find Lazarus is dead. His sisters, Mary and Martha, are in their home with all of their friends and neighbors, and everyone is overcome by grief. Mary hears that Jesus is nearby, and so she, along with her friends and family, they all go out to see Jesus, and she falls at his feet and she cries out, if only you had been here earlier, our brother would not have died. And then Jesus, the incarnate son of God, That is to say, the one in whom the divine fully dwells. That is to say, the one who came to show us how to fully live, looked around and saw everybody convulsing in despair. And Jesus, we are told, was disturbed and moved. Or it could be translated, angry and agitated. Or it could be translated, distressed and touched. Scholarship debates the Greek phrase, but clearly Jesus was deeply troubled. And so Jesus said, where have you laid him? They said to him, Lord, come and see. And then there's that incredible verse, verse 35. It's like, you know, uh, sometimes in games, like where you're supposed to answer questions about the Bible. What is the shortest verse in the Bible? Verse 35, John chapter 11, Jesus wept. But let's just pause here. Jesus wept. Jesus, the incarnate Son of God, that is to say, the one in whom the divine fully dwells, the one who came to show us how to fully live, looked around and saw everybody weeping, disturbed, distressed, groaning. He doesn't turn as quickly as possible. He doesn't give a quick fix. We are told merely and simply and profoundly that Jesus wept. Let's pause here. Lazarus dies, and Mary and Martha weep. Lazarus dies, and his friends and neighbors weep with them. Lazarus dies, and Jesus beholds, he beholds it all, kind of like we are doing with all of the death and all of the weeping over death and all of the brokenness in our world, and Jesus' heart begins to throb. 
His eyes begin to puddle. His lungs gasp for air. And Jesus is ugly face weeping. Nobody has a picture of that on their bedstand. Let's pause here. Why do we turn to Lazarus' resurrection so quickly? Why are we compelled to blitz through death so fast? Why do we think that to blithely accept all too simple answers and pithy Christian sayings is, is the best way to cope with all of our pain? And how is it that we've come to think that this is Christian when it is fact terribly and tragically and deeply anti-Christ? Certainly there must be a better way to live when life breaks into a thousand little pieces. And certainly there must be a better way to exist when we at our deepest places are crushed by sorrow. And so Jesus looked around and saw everybody weeping, disturbed, distressed, groaning. Jesus wept. Let's pause. Could we learn to emulate Jesus here? Could we make space for being crushed to receive some room in our lives to simply be felt and to be expressed? And what if we were to just stop here? Like Jesus, just stop and, and just behold it all. You know, we're beholding more than we were ever made to behold, right? We are evolutionary beings. We were tribal beings. And so for most of our DNA, the experience was experiencing pain within the tribe. You, you barely realize what was going on in the other tribe or the tribe, you know, a few miles down the road. And suddenly we have this global realization of all that is happening. And on one hand, it's great because we're becoming less tribal, but on the other hand, how do we humans hold all of the world's suffering? That is a new experience for humans. What if we were to, like Jesus, just stop to see it, to smell it, to listen to it, to be touched by it, and to be swallowed up by it? Well, then we might eat a little less and sleep a little less like David. <laughs> We might feel moments a little more and lose our composure a little more and weep a little more, like Jesus. Which simply means we might come to embrace our humanity, lived out in this wild world just a little bit more deeply and honestly. In Romans chapter 12, Paul exhorts, let love be genuine. And rejoice with those who rejoice, weep with those who who weep. And that makes me wonder, is it possible for a people who do not weep to genuinely weep with those who weep? Right? Here's a poem. If tears dropped to fill a pond, that pond would be every moment. Anguish and sorrow, sickness and death, happiness, ever happy. So go ahead, take off your clothes. Stand on the pond's side. And then stoop down, see yourself, take your time, more time, no need to hurry. Now lean into it, fall into it, your life, and let it hold you in its arms. I have no idea what this might look like for you. 
Anne Sexton wrote a poem about divorce. David fasted and went without sleep over his sin and chaos and and loss. Jesus' ugly face wept over death. And when Phoebe brought up my forever lack of personal time with my mom, my face contorted as I attempted to, you know, hold it all in. But you see, there's no need to keep it all in. What are we protecting? Pearl Church, as we now know more than ever, there is much sorrow in this life. And it is very human to sip its sadness, to wallow in the dark, to stare into a painting, to write a poem, to listen to a song, to go for a walk, to call a friend, to scream, jump, swim, punch a bag, kick a can, and let your heart throb. Allow your eyes to puddle, release your lungs to gasp, and ugly face feel every single part of your loss and pain and broken dreams and broken heart and fears and sorrow. It is okay for us to be human. And it's also more than that. You see, we were created to be human, and the divine human has come to show us how to be more fully human. And so this is important for us. Let us write it down on the tablets of our hearts. Humans mourn. Humans must mourn. And as a result, humans who mourn are able to be more genuinely present to every other human who mourns. According to this morning's gospel story, it is the humans who mourn who are able to hear Jesus declare, Lazarus, come out. And maybe that's the point. Like, unless we allow ourselves to enter, to wholly, fully enter into tombs and into death, there's truly nothing from which the Spirit of Christ can call us to rise up from. For truly, it is only those who enter into tombs who are able to come up out of tombs. It is only those who sip sadness, who wallow in the dark, who stare into a painting, who write a poem, who listen to a song, who go for a walk, who call a friend, who let their hearts throb, their eyes puddle, and their lungs gasp, who after a while, sometimes a very short while, sometimes a very, very long while, you can never know when you enter a tomb how long it will last, but after a while, those who enter tombs find that they are able to do something that they never imagined would be possible again, which is to rise and to come out of a tomb and to realize that they are no longer dead but more deeply alive than ever before. John chapter 11, verse 44, the dead man came out, his hands and feet were wrapped with strips of linen and a cloth around his face, and Jesus said, take off the grave clothes and let him go. Who's Lazarus? Perhaps Lazarus is every single one of us after time in tombs, finding newly raw and tender hearts, open to more complexity, expanded by time in the dark places, overwhelming sensitivity and compassion toward others, moved like never before to take a stance, to speak a word, to move forward with renewed conviction. You see, it's us more alive than ever, not because we've become experts at shoving it, but because we've allowed ourselves to become more like Christ and to just let it all break out. 
And so William Blake writes, O holy virgin clad in purest white, unlock heaven's golden gates and issue forth. Awake the dawn that sleeps in heaven. Let light rise from the chambers of the east and bring the honeyed dew that cometh on waking day. O radiant morning, salute the sun. Salute the sun who leads us into tombs, who shows us how to exist in sorrow, who after a while calls us out, undresses us from our grave clothes, and speaks, live. The sun who gives us more and more and more life here now today, especially in the midst of our newfound willingness to exist in tombs of mourning. May it be so and let us pray. God of all consolation and compassion, your son wept over mourning. Your son wept over death. We know and taste and see and feel much death these days. Give us the courage to weep and to enter into today's tombs. this sermon inspired you to ponder the sacred, to consider the mystery and love of God, and to live bountifully. If you don't already support our work, will you begin today? You can donate easily and securely at our website, pearlchurch.org, or follow the link in the podcast notes. Thank you for partnering with us in expressing this sacred story. Mm